This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. There actually was significant value for readers of a particular region knowing that their paper they had this allegiance to had them in mind and was out in the world, the world of movies, the world of, you know, foreign government, whatever, and was bringing the news home to them. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We've had some episodes recently that are about big issues in the media, right? You know, what, what, what do people feel they can say? You know, what can they argue about? Do they have to look over their shoulder for Twitter or for their bosses? But stuff happening to national journals, whatever its import or whatever you think about it, is, in my view, very, very far from the most important question in media, the most dangerous thing happening in media in America. The most dangerous thing happening to the media in America is that local media is dying. Local newspapers, local stations, local journalism, city journalism, metro journalism, regional journalism. There are vast swaths of the country where we do not have anything like the amount of reporting, not just of state houses, but of daily life that we used to. And even to the extent we do have that reporting, it goes unread. It loses influence. It goes unseen. It's underfunded. It's a tragedy, and it is getting worse. It is getting worse fast. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist at the Washington Post. She's the longtime or was a longtime editor of the Buffalo News, and she's the author of a new terrific book on the destruction of local media called Ghosting the News. And I wanted to have her on because I wanted to take at least one episode of the show to focus in on something we reference all the time, but but don't give direct attention to enough, which is what is happening to local media and what, what can we do about it? As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sullivan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Let me begin with a question I've decided I think needs to start every show now. Like, how are you doing? How are you, how are you actually? I'm doing really well. You know, I spent the first, I think, 10 weeks of the pandemic in New York City, where I live. Uh, even though I work for the Washington Post, I, I'm based in New York. That was really tough. But then I did what I usually do in the for some of the summer, which is come to a family cottage on Lake Erie, pretty close to Buffalo. That's where I am now. And I, I have more freedom of movement here. And it's it's just easier to be here. And I'm I'm doing fine. I mean, I kind of um control my my uh 
mental state with a lot of yoga and meditation. That's really important to me. And uh, otherwise, I'm doing well. I mean, uh, not otherwise, but because of that, I think I'm doing well. My meditation practice has gone to hell. It's a real problem. <laughs> it usually works for me, but I've been having trouble. Um, let me actually ask you one thing related to that. I know a lot of people in this moment are trying to manage your mental state in part by filtering the amount of information they're getting. That now that we're all home all the time, you can just be jacked into every news alert and Twitter and Facebook and you know a million sites and information every second on COVID. Has your media diet changed at all during this period? I don't think it has. I mean, it's it's a, a part of my job, my normal job as media columnist for the Washington Post to be pretty plugged in. And I am, but I don't think I'm extreme about it. I know there are people who, you know, absorb every single thing that happens. I sometimes find myself in catch up mode. You know, of course I'm on social media and I'm on Twitter, but sometimes I'll go into it and say, why is everyone talking about feral hogs or whatever it may be? And I have to do a quick catch up. So I don't think I'm extreme that way. And I haven't really changed my media habits. No. So let's get into the book then. And I want to begin with two really scary data points. American newspapers cut 45% of their newsroom staff between 2008 and 2017, 45%. And then from 2004 to 2015, the U.S. newspaper industry lost over 1,800 print outlets as a result of closures and mergers. How did this happen? What, what caused it? Well, I will answer your question, but I also want to say just quickly that the numbers are actually now much, much worse than that because between 2015 or 2017 and today, a lot has happened. And actually, I think the pace of decline has accelerated significantly, particularly since uh, the coronavirus uh, did such, you know, the reaction to it did such harm to the economy and to advertising. So um, those numbers are scary and they're actually much worse than that. But to answer your question, how did it come to pass? Well, let's talk about newspapers. My book and the problem is not just about newspapers, but newspapers are kind of a big part of it and an, and a way to talk about it without getting too complicated. So let's Let's narrow it a bit and talk about newspapers. Well, newspapers for the long, for a long time, many decades, were very profitable. And the reason they were so profitable was they had a corner on print advertising. In some cases, especially when the second or third newspaper went out of business in a particular city, they were kind of the only game in town when it came to getting your message out. And so they were able to really charge a lot for advertising and really reel in the money hand over fist. And the other piece of the revenue pie was a smaller piece, but still a significant one was subscriptions. So when I grew up in the Buffalo area, my mom and dad subscribed to the Buffalo Evening News and the Buffalo Courier Express. And so did everybody else. You know, we got the morning paper, we got the afternoon paper. So both of those big pieces of revenue have dwindled very significantly for a host of technological and societal reasons. Tell me a bit about the technological and societal reasons. Another stat from your book is that fewer than one in six Americans actually pays for local news, which includes having a subscription, print, or digital to the local newspaper. There's a lot of technological and societal reasons, but 
I think if you are a really cold-eyed economist, you might listen to that stat and say, oh, I guess Americans don't value local news. And as such, maybe the market is simply providing what they actually want. Yeah, I think there's a paradox there. And I, I, you know, I don't understand every aspect of it. But the truth is that people do value local news. They do find local news more trustworthy, for example, than they do the national media, which often in people's minds means sort of cable news. They do value it. They take it for granted, though. And so, you know, in a typical region, the newspaper has provided a lot of the local news indirectly to TV and radio stations in the area. But as the newspaper, which is sort of the engine of all that local news, goes away, so goes the whole local news ecosystem. So people do value it. And some people pay for it. And some people feel like the internet is free. And so I'm not going to pay for this thing that used to be better. People feel like their local newspaper used to be better. Now it's not as high quality, perhaps they think, as it used to be, or perhaps they think it's more biased than it used to be. And so, no, I'm not going to pay for that. I expect news on the internet to be free. And there's not a deep sort of understanding of what happens when that all goes away. When I think back to the mid-century American media markets, what I see from an economic standpoint is awful. You see monopolies everywhere. You see barriers to entry into competition. You talk about being at the Buffalo News, which is owned by Warren Buffett, and him recognizing that it needed to be basically a monopoly, so starting a, a newspaper war in the area that ends up driving the other competitor out of town. It comes out slowly. Oftentimes, audiences can't all get what they want. And yet, there was clearly a lot of benevolence and value in the inefficiencies of the market. It allowed something that, as you say, is a public good to be provided privately, or in most cases, privately. And the making of the news into a hyper-competitive market that gives people exactly what they seem to want on social media, (laughs) uh, driven up by algorithm at every moment, doesn't seem to have made people happier. And so it's just part of the problem here that we have left what is fundamentally a public good to private forces. Yes, I think that is a huge part of the problem. And, you know, as you say, for a while, despite all of those bad things that you just mentioned, and I don't disagree with any of them, some large piece of it was working because there was enough money, enough revenue to make sure that big newspapers and and other local news organizations had lots of reporters. So, you know, you'd have a reporter at every town board meeting and you'd have a reporter at every school board meeting in the suburbs and in the city of a particular area. So even though the ownership might not have been so benevolent. Actually, I have to say Warren Buffett was a, a pretty benevolent owner or certainly hands off. But but not if you're the courier. No. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, from the during the time that I was editor of the paper. That's right. But, the, you know, the truth is there really, I mean, there really wasn't room for two newspapers in the Buffalo area and he could see that. So he wanted to be the winner. So there is that practical aspect. I mean, if you look, if you look back at cities from, you know, 
Cleveland and every other place like that, the second newspaper was pretty much going out of business in the 70s and 80s. So he wasn't wrong about that. At any rate, I think that the the fact that you could have lots and lots of reporters doing their work and experienced editors and experienced copy editors, um, you know, getting out this this paper, regardless of what the ownership was or what the business model was. Um, you know, I think that's the piece of it that worked pretty well. When I look back at the structure and size of many of these mid-market newspapers from our current vantage point, it's just remarkable. You write about the Buffalo News having at its height more than a thousand employees and is now down beneath 150. It had let a- me let me let me just correct that a little bit, if I may, Ezra. The thousand was company wide, including circulation, advertising, all of that. The newsroom, you know, which is I think the way we tend to want to talk about these things. The newsroom was 200. By the time I left, it was 150. And now it's well below 100. And that's more typical. I mean, the Cleveland Plain Dealer is a great example. Certainly had 300 people in its newsroom. Now is down to a mere handful. And I really mean a handful. The decline is is very sharp. But you're right. These regional newspapers had a lot of, they had big staffs. There's a way in which your size seems to me looking back to have been important. And, and, and thank you for that correction. I, mis- I, I misunderstood that comparison. But so the Baltimore Sun, and I may get this number wrong from memory, but it had something like five or seven foreign bureaus. Buffalo News had its own Washington, D.C. bureau. And you might, again, somebody from the outside who's looking for efficiencies, a private equity firm or something, might look at that and say, why do you need to be duplicating what the Washington Post is already doing? Just license some content from them. Why do you need your own bureau in France, Baltimore Sun? I mean, you know, we can get stuff um, from some kind of stringer service. But it seems to me that one thing that helped keep these institutions afloat was that they were this very big bundle. And as pieces of the bundle that in some cases are civically important, but in many cases are simply entertaining, right? You get really good sports news from um, SBNation.com. You get great political news from the Washington Post online. You get um, you know, your foreign news maybe by reading The Guardian. As it begins to unbundle, it also really does lose part of the value proposition. And so it ends up being you know, at the beginning, a hunt for efficiencies and ways to save some money. And like, does it really matter if we don't have this because aren't we supposed to be local? It seems to me that something we found is that it may not be as viable business as we hope for these institutions to purely be local because people care about all these other things. And so long as they care about them, they're going to gravitate towards organizations that key into those identities and interests. Yeah, no question about it. And I do think as we, you know, as you look back and say, well, the Baltimore Sun or the Philadelphia Inquirer had all of these foreign bureaus. And was that really necessary? I mean, maybe not necessary, but I think of value to their readers. And more to the point, let's look at arts coverage. I mean, it's very easy to say that a regional newspaper doesn't need to have its own movie critic. Why Why does it? They can just use, you know, they can use the AP. They can use Ann Hornaday, wonderful critic for my paper, the, the Washington Post. What difference does it make if the Toledo Blade has its own movie critic? I guess I think that in the aggregate, there actually was significant value for readers of a particular region knowing that 
their paper they had this allegiance to had them in mind and was out in the world, the world of movies, the world of, you know, foreign government, whatever, and was bringing the news home to them. And that's particularly true of Washington bureaus, which have dwindled so much. The Buffalo News still has a wonderful Washington correspondent, a one-man Washington bureau who functions out of his home, but really does incredible work, Jerry Zaremsky. I mean, the work he does would not be duplicated or even come close to by using wire services because he's looking out for the specific interests of the Western New York reader in Washington. This brings me to a question that I puzzle over. It's part of my book um, on polarization. But here I think it, it's maybe best framed as a causality question. Did American politics nationalize because local news began to weaken or did local news weaken in part because American politics nationalized? Well, it is a chicken and egg question. I'm not I'm not sure that it can be answered definitively. It's kind of a cycle that started and who knows where it actually began. But I think there's reason on both sides that sort of exacerbated the problem on the other side. Um, it's both. Because it's something that I worry about. I mean, you were just mentioning the the Buffalo News correspondent, but it seems to me that now if you're when I grew up and I was getting into politics, I grew up in Orange County, California. And so we got the LA Times in my household. The OC Register was also there. We, I would hear the news on the radio sometimes. But I developed a political identity that was very heavily Californian in its nature. Um, I cared a lot about California politics. My intention was to you know, move back to LA after college and, and, and work in California politics. And I feel like if I were growing up outside of LA now, now the LA Times is being revitalized and, and I'm incredibly optimistic about it. But but even but a couple of years ago when it was in tougher shape, I could really imagine that I'd be somebody who, you know, we had an online subscription to the New York Times and I listened to Pod Save America or maybe the Ezra Klein show. And I would develop this very national political identity, right? Same interests. But it wouldn't be rooted in things that are unique to California. I wouldn't know that much about LA politics to say nothing of San Francisco politics. I wouldn't know that much about what Gavin Newsom is doing. And I think that would be and is a real loss. And, and so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. What role do local news organizations play in creating a politics of place? Yeah, well, I, I think they do create, they they can <laughs> at their best create that sense of I'm part of this region. This is who we are. These are our concerns. You know, we care a lot about the Great Lakes. And so therefore the politicians who deal with that in a good way are are people who who matter to us. The economic questions that come up for the Rust Belt or the Sun Belt or wherever it may be. I mean, I I think that those things still exist, whether they're sort of fed and nurtured the way you're talking about your identity was is is another question. And I think it's sort of part of the reason that some people have kind of fallen off the, the local news bandwagon is that, again, this cycle of people are, are very interested in national politics. And there's a lot of news out there about national politics. And so it's sort of self-perpetuating. I mean, it kind of reminds me of arguments I've had about the co coverage of women's sports. It's like, well, we're not going to cover women's sports because there's not that much interest in it. Well, why isn't there that much interest in it? Is it possible that there's not that much interest in it because it gets less coverage. So, you know, I think it, it, it these things feed each other. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Tell me a bit about the broader consequences that we found happen to a community when they lose their sources of local news. Well, there's a lot of things that happen and none of them are, are good. So the, the sort of umbrella thing that happens is that people become less politically engaged. They vote less, according to studies. They vote in a more polarized way. They don't cross party lines to vote as, you know, if you're a, a, you know, if you're a registered Republican in this new weakened local news ecosystem, you're, you're much more likely to vote down the line Republican rather than ever cross over and vote for a Democrat. I mean, the other thing that happens is that, you know, and this is, you know, not my study, but one that I cite in my book is that municipal borrowing costs actually go up because the watchdog function is gone and there's going to be more waste and more corruption and less efficiency. So um, you get a population that's more polarized and less likely to engage in, you know, positive activism on the local front. And you get governments that are taking advantage of the fact that there's no watchdog there. So it's it's not good stuff. It's pretty bad. It seems to me that at the core of some of the problem here is this paradox of being a news consumer in, in, in the modern era, which is over the past 20, 25 years, the amount of news that I have access to and all I have access to feel bombarded by has gone up by orders of magnitude. National news, international news, to some degree local news. I see random things going viral from this or that news station. And yet the actual amount of journalism being done in this country appears to have gone down um, as we were talking about the uh, staff cuts. The number of institutions has gone down. The sameness of the institutions has increased. And so there's this weird problem, it seems to me, at the center of this where the news industry is trying to convince consumers there's a crisis. They are losing the news. And news consumers feel, if anything, often overwhelmed by the amount of news they have access to. How do you get through that? So 
you're absolutely right. You know, there aren't too many people out there saying, wow, I wish there was more news. I'm worried about this. They, they do feel bombarded. They do feel overwhelmed by it. And I hear lots of people saying, I've shut it off. I don't want to hear it. It's too much. I've, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've just decided to walk away from it. So given that, it's pretty hard to make the argument that, hey, guess what? You know, your local newspaper is going out of business and you need to help do something about it. But, the truth is, it, it, it is a lot of the same stuff. And what we're missing is something quite different. So your, your question to me is, what do you do about it? One of the things that you do about it is create a demand for it by teaching people, young people in schools, news literacy, which is sort of a version of, you know, what used to be called civics, but helping young people and all people understand that news of good quality, particularly local news matters. And here's why. And here's how you tell what it is. So I think the educational piece of it can help create a, a demand for this kind of news that will that will be helpful. Alan Miller, who is the CEO or founder of the News Literacy Project based in Bethesda and is a Pulitzer Prize winning former LA Times reporter, has written about this very recently in the Washington Post, as a matter of fact. And he makes a really compelling argument about just that, that we need to educate as a part of the solution to this problem. Ooh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm always so worried when I hear that civic literacy or news literacy is going to be be the, the answer to one of these, because I'm not saying it can't be. I'm just saying I've rarely seen it sort of work in the past. And I don't um, think there yeah, is yeah. one answer. If there is to be a solution, I'm not convinced there is. But if there is to be a solution, I think it can and should be a part of it. Yeah, that that I certainly agree with, and and I want to get to possible solutions in 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 a second here, but but behind them is partially the economics, and it's something that both you and I, in a way, participate in. You were the editor in chief of the Buffalo News. Um, now you live in New York, but you write for the Washington Post. I grew up in California. I love the LA Times. I have worked for the Washington Post. I write for and was founder of Vox. Um, one of the problems, it seems to me, for the news right now is that as you enter this more winner-takes-all economics, where it's like there's tremendous power to the New York Times, tremendous power to the Post, and to like 10 other outlets, as people want to build careers in journalism, they uh, a lot of bigger names get sucked towards those organizations, and that makes it harder for the organizations they either come from or otherwise might have been at to offer the value proposition that gets people to subscribe. And I'm curious, having been part of that on both sides, and this is something I think about in my own work and, and, and life too, do you feel guilt about that, complexity about that? Do you feel there's some party that should be writing for the um, op-ed page at the Buffalo News? No, I mean, I, I, I just, I don't. I, uh, I'm asked occasionally whether I feel survivor's guilt. Uh, I, I don't. I, I spent 32 years working for my hometown paper. I think I, I did what I could to, you know, make a contribution there. I, let, let me ask it differently. Should I feel it? I'm not really, uh, you know, as a, as a, uh, a person who was brought up in the Catholic faith, I'm not somebody who is eager to encourage guilt in anyone. I, you know, I my, everybody I know has lots of it and doesn't need any more. No, I, I don't think guilt is, is an appropriate response. I think the appropriate response might be, how can I help? And I mean, I think you're helping right now by, you know, helping people understand the sort of structure of the problem and get people to think about it. I've gotten some incredibly thoughtful responses from people just since an excerpt of my book ran in the Washington Post 
magazine, people sort of working through some of this and thinking through it. So no, I, I, I don't think the guilt is an answer. I think that trying to figure out how we can help is a good answer. Let's talk about one of the other answers that comes up in the book, which is something that I've played around with for a long time, the public funding for local news. Tell me the the case against that, because I think that has been predominant for a long time. And then why some people like you and Nicholas Lemon have begun to question um, and begun to potentially think it is the right path forward. So, I mean, this is something that I really struggled with in writing the book, and I'm still, I still feel a lot of, uh, you know, internal debate over. So the case against public funding for independent news organizations is that by accepting or seeking and accepting government funding, you are giving up a piece of your independence, that the independence comes from not being beholden to and nothing like money to make you feel beholden to or to be, you know, self-censoring, pulling back, pulling your punches, whatever it may be. I mean, We've seen a version of this when our funding came from advertise, when our funding mostly came from advertisers, because a powerful advertiser in town could lean on the publisher and say, Hey, stop running, you know, those critical stories about what's happening at my company or I'll pull my advertising. But it wasn't as powerful a complaint or as effective a complaint because there were other advertisers, you know, the sort of, the sort of, uh, field was diverse. But if your funding is coming from the federal government, you know, I think you're really susceptible to political pressure. And that is a death knell for effective journalism. So that, you know, in a very vague way, that's the case. That's the case against it. And that is the reason that journalists have traditionally recoiled from this idea and treated it sort of as a third rail. So tell me then the case for it. Well, we're desperate now <laughs> and uh, we need money. So, um, I mean, it, it, it's a little more complicated than that, but not too much more. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing the dissolution and demise of a imp- very important foundation of the democracy. So maybe we need to rethink our ideas a little bit and be open to ways that this could be done with safeguards so that independence is preserved. And Nick Lemon, the former dean of the Columbia Journalism School, and in fact, the the uh, CEO, I guess his title is, with my publisher of this book, Columbia Global Reports, is probably uh, a few steps uh, ahead of me on this in that he feels more strongly and has made the case strongly that this really is something that must be taken seriously. And he believes that you could build in some guardrails and that it could work. One of the things that worries me about it is this whole thing is going away very fast before our eyes. You know, there are mergers, papers are going out of business. The the whole thing is sort of going down the drain. And anytime you are dealing with government bureaucracy and the whole idea of, you know, how is this going to work? What's the process? What should the safeguards be? That is a very time-consuming process. We don't have a lot of time. I want to quote a bit from Nicholas Lemon here, because I think he makes a good case. And and I think I'm both a little bit more on the side of this argument and a little less uncomfortable with it to, to do the double negative here than you are. But he writes, 
Government support can be structured in many different ways. Great portions of the independent truth-seeking activity in the United States are funded by the government reasonably successfully, despite enormous built-in potential for political interference. The Federal Reserve employs many more professional research economists in any economics department. Public libraries almost all the time are permitted to acquire their books and research materials freely. University research, indeed universities generally, including private universities, are overwhelmingly supported by the government, including when their work touches on politically controversial subjects. And then when I simply look at the world of media, and I look at media outlets that do get substantial public funding, PBS, NPR, the BBC in the UK, I don't look at them and think, ooh, that looks like non-independent reporting that looks a lot worse than what we're doing elsewhere in the industry. I actually often look at them and think they're outperforming their competitors civically, if not always economically, which is often when you need to fund a public good, um, when you have something that isn't going to survive in the market. So I worry sometimes in this conversation that there is, we are overly rosy about our incentives when we are in the marketplace, which maybe gives us a lot of freedom to be antagonistic to the government, and that's for the good, but it also makes us into forms of entertainment, and that can often be for the bad. And a little bit overly afraid of the idea that, you know, some things are not fit for the market, and there's maybe actually not such a contradiction here. We have lots of successful models, not just outside media, but inside of it. Well, I think that's a persuasive argument and one that we need to be more open to. And I, and I am, I, uh, you know, as I say, I've come around quite a bit on this. Um, so I think you're probably right. I will say though that, so there's a whole other piece of this conversation that we, we haven't touched on and maybe you intended to, but, you know, the nonprofit news organizations that have sprung up in so many communities in the, the sort of prototypical one is the uh, Texas Tribune in Austin. What they would say about to this is absolutely not. I, I think they would. Um, the, some of the leaders of them would say, absolutely not. You're looking in the wrong direction. We need to dig down into the model that we have come up with and founded in this digital sphere and do even better with it. And it's based on both philanthropy and membership. So that, you know, making the case to the public that you need to support us because we do this important work and also garnering uh, philanthropic dollars. And those news organizations, many of them are really great and doing really good stuff. The problem is so far, they don't scale very well. You, you know, you just aren't going to have one of them in every place that uh, a newspaper has gone out of business. I'm a huge fan of the Texas Tribune. I think they do amazing work. But two things on this. So one, this feels to me like a very classic, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, it's great to have philanthropically funded organizations. But the second thing that I sometimes worry about the philanthropic approach, because I, um, I'm i a media person, I, I, I get I'm sent proposals for things like this. I see proposals for things like this. I've been on the um, asked to participate in things like this. One thing I notice is that when philanthropists want to come in and fund local news, what they always want to fund are the most civically important parts of it, right? So it's always very political. It's very investigative. It's very high-minded. But something that you talk about, I think, with quite a bit of eloquence in the book is that local news plays a cultural role as well. It's a way a community explains itself to itself. It's a way it creates conversations and signifiers. A lot of what is important about local news is simply local restaurant reviews, is simply like the local sports team. And one of the things that often seems to me to be a problem in the philanthropic efforts 
is that they're trying to create a form of news that is what journalists like about the news, like what the Pulitzer Committee rewards, but is not what tends to bring the audience to the news. And that's a problem, one, because you're not necessarily going to get the audience you want to get. Although, again, I think the Texas Tribune has been an exception here. But two, the investigative work, the the, the impact work, it has power because it has a connection to the community from the, from the other side of the work. Like it's because everybody's reading it that the politicians care what the news says. And so I just, I sometimes worry that philanthropy ends up being a different thing. What philanthropists want to do is put their name on something that brings them a lot of renown. And so that, that creates an incentive to be more high-minded than I think is wise for the news to be sometimes. No, I think that's absolutely right, Ezra, and and that's a worry. Of course, we want to do that investigative work, the high-minded stuff that wins a prize and, you know, maybe unveils, reveals corruption and fixes a societal ill. I mean, of course, that's, that is, I think, the most important work that journalists can do in a community. But it isn't the only kind. And you're right that the, the other stuff, the restaurant reviews, the feature story on some interesting person, the concert coverage, the feature story on a, an artist, whatever it may be, especially in the aggregate, is very, very important to people. Staff written obituaries, for example, are something that are extremely important to a community. And I don't think that the Texas Tribune is about to start doing those. And and that's not a knock on them. It's just that's not their function, but it is an important function. So the package, the sort of the bundled thing that you were talking about is part of what is wonderful about a daily newspaper, especially in printed form. You know, it comes, you turn the pages, you see some stuff that you probably wouldn't have seen. You can talk to your neighbor about it because they see it too or you can send it their way if they didn't see it. It's a way that the community kind of gathers itself. It's a focal point in the village square. Have you seen specific proposals for public funding of local news that you thought were well-designed or promising? I haven't. I mean, if they're out there, I haven't seen them. That doesn't mean they're not out there. It may well be that the Knight Foundation has a something that's going to pop two weeks from now that you know will be that, it, but I haven't seen it. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. 
Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Are there local news models, you mentioned the Texas Tribune, that um, you see as particularly promising or, or innovative, you know, be they fully private or philanthropically funded or something else? A few things that I've seen that I think are are cool and great are, just to stay on the Texas Tribune for one more minute, they have joined forces with ProPublica, the investigative news organization based in New York, but increasingly putting people all around the country. And so they have gotten together two really well-respected news organizations, and in order to do more, much more sweeping investigative statewide coverage. So that's a great marriage of two of two news organizations. I think that, you know, a lot of the nonprofits, I mean, one of the one of the keywords here if we're going to fix this thing is collaboration. You know, there was a time when all these news organizations either ignored each other or competed with each other. But now we need to be collaborating. There's a group in Pennsylvania that does you know, statehouse coverage by combining different news organizations and their resources to cover the work that in, perhaps in the past they would have been trying to scoop each other. Now they're trying to actually, I think, serve the populace better. So, um, you know, I see a lot of these things cropping up. You know, one other thing that happens is that national organizations are looking at the situation and saying, well, how can we be of service? One of the things that's gone away is and that's so important to good work, is legal representation. If you want to do a really strong kick-ass story, you're going to need to have lawyers look at it and perhaps represent you later in court. So the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which is based in D.C., is offering those kinds of services to news organizations around the country that don't have, you know, in-house lawyers like David McCraw at the New York Times, who's like a, you know, famous newsroom lawyer, or Jay Kennedy at the Washington Post. And that's, that's extremely important. So, you know, there, there actually are a lot of hopeful signs. It's just, I'm not sure they together are going to actually save anything. The question for me, when, when I look at some of these projects and, and organizations, is always, how are they going to compete for attention, right? I mean, so much of what happens online in media, but just in media generally now, is we're in this incredible competition for attention that we just weren't in before. Um, there just was not as many alternatives 25 years ago as we're all facing now. And so that means that things that speak to your deepest identities that are really controversial, that everybody's talking about on Twitter, that scale really well, like there's a lot of power to that. And so one of the things that I always think about, like revitalizing local news does seem to me to be the single most important project in journalism right now. And I've always, and like sometimes like I'll be in meetings where we'll play around with like, what would, what would one do? And it always seems to me that identity actually has to be a very big part of this. And I know I'm somebody who thinks about political identity all the time, but, but maybe there's some use to it, which is simply that what it seems to me local news often has to do is like rebuild like a proud chauvinistic local identity that you like you 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 read your local news because like screw all them you're from this place 
and that a lot more needs to be about a kind of self-conscious construction of a kind of person from a kind of place and their controversies and their loyalties and even their enmities that, that has been true recently. That's part of why I think it's sometimes hard when the model is very investigative, because like that's in, that's in some ways necessarily and productively antagonistic to the place you live. Obviously, it's on behalf of, of, of a better government, but it's not the same as you know the kinds of things that you know, say cable news or a lot of online outlets are doing with national politics where it's just much clearer whose side you're on. And so to me, one of the things I'm always looking for in the innovations here is are people being able to build a really strong like local and communal identity? I suspect that if they're going to be really successful models here, they're actually going to have very big in-person components because I do think a lot of us are starved for ways to connect to the places we live. I moved to Oakland um, about a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, I don't know what time even is anymore. And it has been, you know, we have the San Francisco Chronicle in the area. The LA Times covers California reasonably well. But it is harder to connect to a local place without very healthy, like, media. And even here, which is a very rich place, we don't have it, um, at least not at the level that one would have 20 years ago. And having things that would have both that ability to teach me about a place I live and like want to be connected to and also give me chances to connect to it in person seems really seems really like it'll have to be part of the solution there, because that's a thing that the big digital national players can't offer you. They can't offer you that community. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I, I think you hit on something when you say that one of the reasons that people watch cable news is to sort of in some ways it's to, you know, they know which side they're on and who's going to sort of, you know, feed that in me. You know, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to go to use the extreme example, I suppose, to Fox News to sort of get my outrage on against the, you know, against the liberals. Um, the, I, I don't think that that's something that local news organizations should be trying to emulate, but that's not quite the same thing that you're suggesting, which is to foster and deepen a sense of identity. Just to offer an example of something that's happened recently, and again, I use Buffalo because I have, you know, I have such a history here and I've been, observed it closely, but you might remember just a few weeks ago, this viral story about the Buffalo police knocking over this old guy who was a protester, a racial justice protester. I mean, everyone saw it. He, they, he walked up to these cops in a public place and they they knocked him over and he fell over and there was a pool of blood under his under his head. And it was, um, you know, widely covered everywhere. But interestingly, the video was shot by a guy from the Buffalo uh, public radio station he happened to, you know, have his iPhone trained on it. And then some of the best work around it came from this small outfit in Buffalo, a nonprofit called Investigative Post, like a little mini ProPublica in Buffalo. And they have done a lot of work about what happens when complaints like that go to Buffalo Police Department internal affairs. And often what happens is not too much. A lot of a lot of disciplinary measures get dismissed beyond what seems reasonable. So, you know, even something that's political and viral can end up having a longer tail that takes us into tr more traditional local enterprise reporting that I think is of great interest. Certainly, that's a story of great interest to people in Buffalo and Western New York that kind of comes out of one of those one of those things that's political and ends up being a more systemic look at something that really matters. There's been a lot of debate in journalism over the past number of years, very specifically in the past couple of months, about the sort of tension between 
what gets called objective journalism versus more opinionated journalism. You've termed sort of like, you know, the view from nowhere by Jay Rosen or Wesley Lowry has been talking about moral clarity journalism. And something I always notice when I'm um, traveling and, and reading local papers is that they've often actually moved a little bit less on these issues in the national papers. I would say the Post and the Times, for instance, and part of the people they're comp competing with now have been undergoing much more wrenching change on these questions than uh, a lot of local newspapers that are not in the same or certainly not winning the same kind of attentional wars. And I'm curious what you think the local industry should or could or shouldn't learn from the way that debate has played out and what we've seen in it in the past couple of years. We're possibly just not hearing about it as much. I strongly suspect that these kinds of debates and concerns are happening in pretty much every newsroom, every small newsroom, every sizable newsroom. And it's really important to be talking about it. I'm not at all interested ever in both sides of anything, uh, you know, for, for that purpose. But I do think there's a, a different way to frame this, which is, you know, what is the coverage that's fair? What's the coverage that's fair to the audience as well as to the participants and those affected by it? Um, and I think that's a that's a framing that I find useful. I often hear people, and I guess I'll call them lay people, but you know what I mean by that is readers, news consumers say, just give me the news straight. I don't want your interpretation. And I understand that it's a reasonable thing to say, but I think that it doesn't take into account the fact that every time we do a story, we are making choices. You know, you're making choices about what story to do, what angle to tell it from, who to talk to, uh, what photo to use, what video to use. All of those things kind of enter into the question of, are you giving it to me straight or not? And it also takes into account who are the decision makers and do you have diverse decision makers or do you have decision makers that are grounded in something that is sort of traditional and hidebound? So um, I think those are all pieces of this kind of puzzle. I think it's a good place to leave it, actually. So let me ask you the question we used to end the show, which is, what are three books you've read that you would recommend to the audience? Okay. So I think you might be a little bit surprised by my recommendations, which is not a bad thing, of course. I have one that's directly related to what we've been talking about, which is Democracy's Detectives, James T. Hamilton, The Economics of Investigative Journalism. It's a great book. It won the Goldsmith Prize. It's, it's a very well-researched, detailed look into the costs of doing investigative journalism and the costs in society that are affected when we do it and when we don't do it. So great book. I also want to, because uh, we're in a pandemic and the Broadway season has been canceled, I want to recommend a book by Alexandra Jacobs of, of the New York Times called I'm Still Here, which is a biography of the Broadway legend Elaine Stritch. It's a great, juicy read about an actress, and uh, it's it's a bit of escapism that maybe would be good for everyone right now. And then third, and this is even more of a departure, I suppose, is a memoir called Minor Characters, and it's written by Joyce Johnson, and years ago, it won the National Book Circle Critics Award. It's it's a memoir of being a woman at the time of the, it's a beat, it's a beat generation memoir. So she was Jack Kerouac's girlfriend and she tells the beat story from the perspective of being a woman in the, at the time of the, 
that the beat generation was coming about. It's a wonderful lyrical read that uh, takes you to a different time and place. I could use a different time and place right now. (laughs) Margaret Sullivan, thank you very much. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Margaret Sullivan for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roshi Karma for research. Thank you to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.